0: Our New Testament reading comes from the book of the Psalms as we continue our study in Psalm 73. We will have one more lesson in that Psalm <clears throat> next Lord's Day, and then we'll be back in the book of Titus. I'm in the last chapter of Titus. We'll finish that up in the next few weeks. Psalm 73, please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. out of showing respect for the reading of the Scriptures as was the practice throughout the uh, centuries of the church. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge with the Most High. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands innocent. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said thus, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. Truly, you set them in slippery places, you place them and uh, you make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors like a dream. When one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was in bitter, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. Your right hand holds me. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far away shall perish and put an end to everything who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. I will tell of all your works. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will abide forever. Please be seated. i ask you, please, to go to prayer. Pray for me as I preach this text. We're going to get out a little bit past 12, so don't anticipate leaving at 12 o'clock. It won't be much past, so don't start fretting. I'm aware of the time. Let's pray quietly for, for, for me, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the fact that your word is given to us by inspiration. That holy men, as they were moved by your Spirit, wrote what we have in the Scriptures. and It is reliable and trustworthy. Thank you, O God, for each person that's here this morning. We ask you, O Lord, to be with us. I pray you would be with me as I preach. I confess, O Lord, I am not sufficient for the task that is before me. And so I pray for the help and grace of your spirit, O Lord, to bless and to be with your people as well. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever had an experience that though you were not touched physically, uh, the intensity of what you experienced was so powerful that you felt it physically? I was driving one time from Telluride, view Ure. Colorado to Silverton, Colorado, by way of U.S. 550. 550 makes its way through the Red Mountain Pass in southwest Colorado. I will read this to you, offering some of the most breathtaking views in the state. Nicknamed the Million Dollar Highway, it is one of Colorado's most dangerous passes with an interesting story to tell. The highway, which begins in Montrose, leads travelers south through four counties, Starts outside of URA and traverses down Red Mountain to Silverton about 20 miles. I drove on that road one time. I will never, ever drive on it again. I am not afraid of heights. I'm terrified of heights. And I'm driving up this road. The trees begin to back away from the edge of the road and there's nothing there. No guardrails, nothing. And I come to this first curve, and I'm three inches from death. And my wife says, are you okay? I said, no. (laughs) I was not okay. I was so terrified. My hands were tingling. I was so scared. By God's grace, after about ten minutes, I was up against the mountain wall. And so I was away from the edge, just up against the mountain, the rest of the way south, going to Silverton. Another time, I went on the Rocky Mountain National Parkway. I'll never do that again. I wasn't driving, then. I was lying down on the seat, looking at the window. And Jennifer Turnbull's daddy was driving us over there for RYM the Youth Retreat. And uh, he said, well, you can tell people you've seen the treetops uh, on the Rocky Mountain National Parkway. I would sit up once in a while, and again, it was just nothing that I desired. I didn't see any beauty in it at all. <laughs> nothing that I desired to see. And so my greatest passion. My greatest concern was, my obsession was to get off of that road as quickly as possible without driving off of the edge and getting to safety. Or imagine that someone who is terribly thirsty in a very arid place without water and they've not had water all day and been out in the heat. You can imagine how thirsty someone like that would be. Their obsession would be to get water well, the psalmist in the last portion of his psalm reveals an obsession to us. His obsession is to be more in tune with God, to be more in touch with God, to go from being one who is grumbling against God to one who is submissive to God. This is his passion. John Knox, the great reformer who lived in Scotland, prayed this prayer. Give me Scotland or I die. And you know John Knox had a great influence on Scotland for the cause of the Reformed faith and the cause of the gospel. Well, the psalmist here could well have said, Give me God or I die. The cure for envying the wicked, the cure for being perplexed about the prosperity of the extremely wealthy, who are by no means Christian, who by no means are friendly to God or to the church, the cure for that is expressed to us in these verses. Starting with verse 25 down to the end of the psalm. Would have us to see this this morning, that our chief interest in life, the Christian, should be God himself. Our chief desire should be God himself. Three things this morning. A proper desire for God is achieved by a sober comparison. A proper desire for God is achieved by a sober evaluation. And a proper desire for God is achieved by a sober realization. And the first thing, then, a proper desire for God is achieved by a sober comparison. The psalmists had looked at the world as if God did not exist. Or if God did exist, then he simply was not a just God at all. He looked at the world and saw people that were wicked. He saw people that were arrogant. He saw people that were in rebellion against God, and yet they were wealthy. They didn't have troubles, he writes in here. Like the rest of mankind, they are not plagued. As a matter of fact, they are so full of themselves that they speak against God. What's God going to do about it? What does he know? Why should I fear him? Why should I respect him at all? And so this is the thoughts that they are having as they live their lives in such luxurious comfort. And the writer of the psalm, Asaph, was on the verge of spiritual collapse. Have you ever been to that point in your life? When you look at the world and the way that it's transpiring makes no sense whatsoever. And you wonder, where is God in all of this? And you suffer, and you see those who do not have any care for God, they do not suffer at all. It's like the writer to Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity, meaninglessness as he looks at life, literally breathlessness. That as the writer to Ecclesiastes looked at the world, it seemed as if there was no God at all. He's confused about it. It's Ecclesiastes 7:13-14. Consider the work of God. For who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. Prosperity comes from God. Suffering comes from God. Is what he is saying here. And then on down in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret secret thing, whether good or evil. The same God that created you, the same God that made those mountains, the same God that created the oceans with all the wonders of the underwater life, which is... That's the last, that's the final frontier, not space. The depths of the ocean, the final frontier. The same God who created all those things also made the scorpion. The same God who does all those wonderful things also is sovereign over cancer. And nothing happens without God's approval or God's design. And so the psalmist here struggles with this question of how to live in a world where a good and just God who is sovereign seems to ordain things that are contrary to his character. And at the end he basically says this we're to trust him. That's the key. Again, Ecclesiastes twelve, thirteen and fourteen, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all, for God will bring every act into judgment. The day will come when everyone here will stand before the bar of God to give an account for the deeds done in the body, as Paul writes in the book of Corinthians, whether good or evil. And the only way to stand there, because there's not a person here that does not sin. And not a person here that does not offend God somehow and in some way. I can say by no means am I a man who does not offend God. I offend him often. Ask my wife. She will tell you, oh, you just have no idea what it's like to live with that man. I offend the Lord. We all offend God. And the marvel of it is that as we do so, he nonetheless loves us. As we stand looking to the future, we stand bravely as we look to Christ. And his work on our behalf. A little catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The scripture proved, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Whether therefore you eat or drink whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the Christian, then, should be distinctly satisfied having God in his life. You think about this. Uh, as a man is to be content with a wife. That he has. And the wife is to be content with the husband that she has. The greatest contentment. And the only way to have a good marriage is to have that contentment. As God calls you to that. Now there will be times when you need to talk. There will be times when you need to discuss. There will be times when you need to listen. But a good marriage does not just happen. It takes work. And it is as we try to construct our marriages and making Christ the center of our families and God blesses as we seek to be faithful to him. And so as a husband and wife are to be content with one another, satisfied with one another, so we are to be content and satisfied with God. Asaph, after seeing God aright, has unique longing for God. As you recognize, what are your views of God? You know, all the religions in all the world have conflicting ideas about God, about his existence, about what he's like. And there are those who believe not in God at all, and you know, rather that they see life as being the end result of chance. So orderliness came out of an explosion, and all that is so perfectly in tune came about by chance. It did not. So the psalmist comes to see God as altogether beautiful, altogether lovely. So he asks this rhetorical question. He turns his thoughts to heaven. And he asks this, who have I in heaven but thee? As he looks around and he sees the heavens and he contemplates uh, those deities that are throughout the world and those uh, substitutes for the true God, as he thinks about these things, his eyes and his mind turns toward heaven And he says, who have I in heaven but you? Uh, There's no one else, you see. You can imagine uh, when the early days of courting or dating and uh, you're so terribly in love with one another and uh, you long to see one another if you're separated for a period of time uh, as uh, you are writing one another and thinking about one another constantly. And that's before children and that's before Uh, and that's before trials and things come into your life. All you have is one another, and you're thinking about one another, how quickly you can be together again. Now, my wife's leaving town tomorrow. She's going to California. Uh, She goes for free, and she stays for free, so I can't go. I can't go for free. But she's going, and I will look forward to when she returns. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just saying that there's a time when you're not living together before you're married, And you long for one another if you're separated. That's what's happening here with the psalmist. He has a strong desire. Who have I in heaven but thee? Again, a rhetorical question. And the answer is no one. And there is no other maker except for God. There is no other one who is a redeemer except for God. You alone are God, he is saying. Who have I in heaven but thee? No angel." No dead prophet, no dead person. It is God and God alone. And then he turns his attention toward the earth. There is none on earth that I desire beside you. Can you say that? There is no one I desire, O God, besides you on earth. Now, does that mean that Asaph did not desire his wife? No. Does that mean Asaph did not desire his children? No. He would not be a very good parent or a very good husband if that was true. But compared to God, everything else fades to insignificance. Do you have that kind of view of God? That kind of mindset about God compared to God and knowing God? Nothing on earth compares to that. There is none I desire on earth apart from. From you. He thought well of what the world had to offer. We know that because he tells us in the first part of this that he saw wealth. He saw the ease that wealth seemed to bring. He saw the easy life, the wealth he seemed to have. He wanted that. I want to be like that. I don't want to be in a situation where I kind of get by from week to week. I have illnesses. They don't seem to have any. They go to the best doctors. I can't do that. And so he's envious of that. He knows what the world has to offer. And he desired that. But now he has, if you will, come to his theological senses and he does so by going to worship and reflecting upon God. Is God just? Is God altogether righteous? Is God altogether good? And his conclusion after coming to worship is this, he is indeed. He strongly longed for the things of the world. He has concluded this, what emptiness there is in life without God. What emptiness there is in having all things without God. Emptiness in honor. Without God. Emptiness with glory. Without God. Emptiness in the things of the world. Without God. And listen to this, there is nothing that exists in the world that's going to go with you to heaven. Nothing. I love guitars. I have a collection of guitars. I have a guitar that uh, I have put it on a stand, and every time I walk by it's more beautiful than it was the day before. Seriously. It's beautiful. It's a 1960 J50 Gibson. Acoustic. Beautiful guitar. Oh, it sounds so good. It sounds better when my son Jess plays it because he plays better than I do. As a matter of fact, all my boys probably do by now. But as much as I love that guitar and as much as I appreciate the beauty of that guitar and the instrument itself, it's not going to be in glory, it will not be in heaven. And so he has come to grasp the reality of eternality and to reject God. And to reject what God has to offer us and to reject God's sovereignty and to reject God's purposes and to inflate the things of the world that are coming to no purpose, coming to no good end, coming to ruin, ultimately, is to make a terrible mistake. So the psalmist, again, Asaph has come to see that. He has denoted every conceivable object in heaven and on earth and concluded they are all vanity without God. Here he references the deceits and illusions with which almost the whole world is intoxicated. I'll read it again. He references the deceits and illusions with which almost the whole world is intoxicated for those who are not beguiled by the former scheme of Satan so as to fabricate for themselves false gods, they deceive themselves by arrogance when confiding in their own skills and strength or wisdom. The psalmist has come to this conclusion, there is nothing in all creation I desire more than God. There's a poster, you may have seen it. It says this, the only thing we can take to children with us, is our I mean, the only thing we can take to heaven with us is our children. It doesn't mention the spouse. I don't know why. But it says the only thing we can take with us to heaven is our children. And it's true. And the relationship that you have with your child here is tainted, is it not? I'm not a perfect parent. I know that. You're not either. If you think you are, you're not. I can assure you, you're not. I've made mistakes. I grieve to this day those mistakes. Some of the things that, that crush me the most is being impatient with my children. Can't get over it. It's wrong. But, overall, we have an exceptional relationship. God is blessed with that. I have a good relationship with my children, their wives, and my grandchildren as well. But as wonderful as that is, it would be far better in glory. It will be much better in heaven. Because there, as you read in the scriptures... In the book of Hebrews, there's the place of the souls of men, the souls of women, the souls of children made perfect without the taint of sin. I had a good friend who lost his wife to Alzheimer's. He's a Presbyterian pastor over in Baton Rouge. Uh, His wife had Alzheimer's for a number of years until she finally, the disease robbed her of uh, her faculties and I went to see her. Soon before she died in COVID, all that COVID stuff started. And I didn't get to be with her at her funeral. Did not get to see her right before she died. Uh, It was a few months. And she was not responsive. Uh, Her husband spoke to her, called her name. I spoke to her, called her name, kissed her goodbye. I said to him when she died, She doesn't have Alzheimer's anymore. There's not a person who is in Christ that dies of cancer that has cancer in heaven. And so you can see as you understand these things about God, how the heart of the psalmist changed as you begin to view God biblically. As you begin to understand the God of the scriptures and not the God of his imagination, as he began to bring himself under the rule of God instead of bringing God under his rule and judgment. We make a grave mistake when we bring God under our own judgment. Well, I'm going to have to quit with this. Uh, Possessing God gives him the greatest joy, the psalmist. Verses 23 and 24, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. What's he saying here? He's saying that even though I was at the point of rejecting the faith, even though I was questioning you in a very negative way, accusing you, if you will, of injustice, you're always with me. It's like a wife who has a husband, that's a sorry scoundrel, and she takes him back again and again and again and again and again and loves him just as much as she did before all that started. That's the kind of love God has for us as his people. We are never as true to God as we should be. And yet he understands this even after he has been so, so vile before God. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. God is with him and God guides him. And he understands this, that God is kind and God is loving And God is just through the scriptures and by experience. Have you ever had something in your life that you just knew you would not be able to deal with it? Did not want to face it. But it was coming. And you knew it was coming as you looked at the circumstances, as you examined it, and as you looked at your own strength, you were convinced that you could never, ever deal with this. How could my life possibly go on? And yet, for the Christian, when that event happens, God is there. And God is gracious. And we still have God's promises. For me, that event in my life was a loss of my father. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy at all. And yet, because of my father's faith, and because of my faith, and because of God's faithfulness, I was able to bear through it. And even have a joy and confidence that I will see him again. See, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the hope that Christ and Christ alone gives to us is the gospel. Because Christ, you see, defeated sin and defeated death by his work on the cross of Calvary. The God-man who kept the law for us. The God-man who went upon the cross of Calvary and suffered the condemnation and wrath and punishment our sins deserve. The God-man who was raised from the dead for our justification lives forever to make intercession for us. And if we are in him and trusting him, it says in the scriptures, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And so the psalmist has come to recognize God is a God of justice. God is a God who is absolutely right, and he is to be trusted. And trust in God brings a change in the heart of the psalmist. The key to joy, the key to happiness, if you will, is an abiding faith and trust in God. That those circumstances may say to you, there is no loving God who rules the universe. We have to remember we have but a glimpse of what's happening. We are not omniscient. God is. We're not all powerful. God is. And God is altogether good. And God is altogether just. And the psalmist knows that. So there was, he concluded, no reason to be envious of the wicked. No reason to desire their riches because he had God. And in God, he had riches beyond imagination. Do you trust him this morning? Do you love Christ? Or do you love your sin much more and refuse to accept him? The wonderful expression of grace, no matter how many times we say no. He's always willing to accept us. And when we fail miserably, he welcomes us back. That's the kind of God that he is. Let's pray.